Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We are working our way through the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, which is our doctrinal statement of faith. We're in chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity. And we are all the way, all the way through to paragraph 3. And uh, paragraph 3 is, uh, I don't know that they planned it this way, but ironically enough, um, it is the Trinity, the Holy, the Trinity of, of, the, of God and the Holy Trinity. This is the Trinity of that chapter. And so paragraph 3 uh, breaks down an explanation of the Trinity. And so that's where we actually just started last week. And, of course, we read through the paragraph that you see right here. This is not where we um, ended. We actually uh, covered a couple of points, and then we had to stop. Uh, so we're going to pick back up by reading this paragraph again. Just as a reminder, we'll just hit those two bullet points, not really dwell on them, and then we'll move on. So paragraph 3 is, In this divine and infinite being there are three substances, subsistences, the Father, the Word, or Son, and the Holy Spirit of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. All infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. Which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him? Now, um, this obviously, first of all, we're focusing on the unity of the three persons. And this, you know, in essence, is uh, what we see in the whole idea of the Trinity. We talked about that before we read the paragraph, about what the definition is of a Trinity, which just means three things combined together in unity. Um, that is what a Trinity is. Um, you do not find the word Trinity in the Bible. Now, this is one of the things that there's an objection to the Trinity by many. We're going to break those down and talk about them. Uh, it's the major objections to the idea of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and we do not worship the name Trinity. Uh, we recognize the Trinity as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, but we do not uh, see that word Trinity in the Bible. Well, that's not the only word we don't see in the Bible that we use to describe things. Why do we do that? Because the word itself is the description. That, that, that basically condenses what we're talking about down into one. So if we don't say Trinity, we could say God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all the time and not say Trinity. Does that make sense? We could do that, and there's no problem with that. It's not wrong for us to do that at all. Um, in fact, you'll notice that many times in many of the confessions, uh, you will not see the Trinity listed there specifically. You will see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You see this um, in these various confessions and creeds. Now, why is that? Because they're using the words directly from the Bible in many cases. Many of our creeds and confessions are using language directly from Scripture, language directly from the Bible itself, and so that's why they do that. So notice we also talked about just these two quick points. Scripture described three types of being, God, men, and angels. That's what we see in Scripture defined um, as, as far as actually beings that have uh, souls. Now we're talking about, we say, we say beings in this. I don't want to get too confused about this, and I don't want to get too confused about souls. But I, I want you to understand we say beings, what, what I really mean and what the Scriptures talk about, are not things like animals, plants, and rocks. You understand what I'm saying? We're talking about these, in, these animate things that do have a spirit, and that is uh, men, God, and angels. Now, 
Uh, are they different? Oh, you bet they're different. Yes, they're very different. They're not the same. We just spent this entire time talking about God. Uh, and so obviously God is not the same as men. And angels are not the same as men, right? They have different abilities, different properties. They exist in a different plane of existence. Um, obviously, when it's God's will, they are able to show themselves to us in our physical existence. Uh, we know that, according to the scriptures, that man uh, does have a body and a soul. The soul is the spirit. The soul lives on forever, even though the body decays. The body can be glorified, uh, made into a different state in which it will live forever. And that is indeed the body that Christ now inhabits. But without going too far down that path, because that's an entire different chapter, uh, let's just go look at the next point, which is that men and angels are limited. They can only exist in one place at one time, and only exist with one physical or metaphysical person or body. In other words, Satan is not everywhere at one time. He is an angel. He's a fallen angel, but he is an angel. He cannot exist in everywhere at one time. So when people say, oh, Satan made me do it. Satan tempted me. Satan did this. Satan, did this. Satan is not everywhere all the time. Many times people will say, well, they'll want to blame somebody, and so they'll blame Satan for the one who's tempted them. It's not Satan. It's themselves. It's the flesh. The scriptures are pretty clear on this. You're tempted by Satan, you're tempted by the world, and you're tempted by the flesh. Whose flesh are, is tempt you? Well, you could say sometimes it's other people's flesh, but in general it's your flesh that is tempting you. Does that make sense? You say, well, man, that guy next door, he cuts his lawn so good, he tempted me. I'm going to have to spend time cutting my lawn more often rather than reading the Bible. <laughs> I'm coming up with some weird... <laughs> anyway, you say, well, that you know, was his fault. He tempted me. No, it's you. It's yourself, right? It's, in that case, it's actually pride. That te- your, your pride tempted you and told you that you should do this. Are you with me on that? So uh, let's not go too far down that path again because we already beat this up enough last week. All right, so here we are for where we just started this week. God is the only being that is infinite and unlimited. Part of that limitlessness is that he is shared fully by three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So again, we've talked about this. We mentioned this in the beginning. We're going to talk about it more as we move through the rest of this paragraph. But this idea of God existing in three persons is what we call a divine mystery. There are other divine mysteries in the Scriptures. There are multiple that we see. We call them divine mysteries. And we call them a divine mystery because God understands that we do not. Why? Because we are finite. We are limited in our intellect. We are not fully able to comprehend or to understand exactly what it means. Now, let's clarify this. That's why we call it a divine mystery. The divine mystery means that God has not revealed it to us fully. What is the reason God has not revealed to us fully? Sometimes, depending on what the divine mystery is, he tells us why we can't know those things. Other times, he does not tell us why we can't know those things. But we call them a divine mystery because God has not chosen to fully reveal them to us. Now, interestingly enough, if you think about it in some terms, first of all, that sometimes is viewed by other people, non-believers, as an excuse. Oh, you've made this thing up and you can't explain it all the way, so you call it a divine mystery. Okay, you don't hear that too often. (laughs) The argument isn't made too often. But no. We say, oh, obviously, that's so easy to defend. It's almost not even worth spending time on it. But there is a, almost an unbelievable amount of counter-argument that you can make on this. Well, wait a minute. You have no idea how a rock becomes a human, but, and yet you defend that. You believe that's true. 
I, way easier for me to believe. You, your belief takes way more faith because you have zero proof of how a rock can become a man versus me believing that God exists in three persons. Are you with me on this? So it's not even worth talking about what your defenses are against somebody saying something like that. But the point is, is that we say a divine mystery because it's something that God hasn't fully revealed. If you think about that, the sacrifice that would have to be paid, the propitiation for our sins, was a divine mystery to those living before Christ. There was much prophecy written about it, right? And even if you knew and understood all the prophecy, there was still some mystery to how this is all going to come about. And even when you see some of the what happens in the New Testament, even with the apostles who, granted, are not the most uh, scripturally astute of individuals that he picked, right? But even when you see him talking with some of like Nicodemus, you see him talking with Nicodemus, there are concepts that Christ brings out that are confusing to Nicodemus, that Christ has to explain to him being born of the Spirit is born again. He has to explain this to Nicodemus, John 3, right? Why does that happen? Because even these biblical, great biblical scholars, Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel at the time, does not understand these things because it was still a divine mystery until it was fully revealed. It was a divine mystery. When was Christ going to return for the second coming? When is that going to happen? Well, it's still a bit of a divine mystery. Do we have prophecy that gives us points to signs? Yes, we do. Has some of those things come to pass, or have we seen things that look like them come to pass in the past so it would look like Christ's return was imminent? Yes, absolutely we have. And if you don't, just look up the book, 88 Reasons Why Christ is Coming in 1988, and then 89 Reasons Why Christ is Coming in 1989, etc., etc., all the way up through 1998. Yes, they kept selling the books. People kept buying the books every year. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sure that the sales started to taper off through the end there. But anyway, I should have that way. Uh, so this was still a divine mystery to the people of the Old Testament. How was Christ actually come? Now, we see he's going to be born, right? He's going to be born, if they were paying attention, he was going to be born in Bethlehem. They were going to see that he was going to come from Nazareth. How are those two things going to work? Not clear. How about he's going to come out of Egypt? That was also prophesied. How is that going to work? Jews were forbidden to go to Egypt. Oh, how's that all going to work? Well, interesting, right? That was a mystery to them. How was that actually going to proceed, right? Was he going to actually be, and this is what many, many Jews believed, he was going to come forward and lead them with power and authority to take over from the Romans. He was going to destroy the Roman Empire and actually inaugurate his reign on the earth right then when he came the first time. They didn't see it as a second coming. Some biblical scholars did. Many did not. Many did not. So this was still a divine mystery to them. Why? God had not chosen to fully reveal it. It was progressively revealed through time. We see more and more prophecy through the Scripture that tell about what Christ's coming, what the Messiah's coming was going to look like, but was it completely revealed? No, it wasn't completely revealed. So that was more of a divine mystery to them. Looking back in hindsight, of course, we say, oh yeah, why didn't they know? Because clearly Daniel said this and Isaiah said this and all these Old Testament prophecies said all this. They should have known this was so clear. Really easy to say that when you look back and you know what already happened. But for most of them, that was not the case. That was not the case. They did not fully understand it because they weren't able to yet. So 
when we talk about divine mysteries, it's just a case where God, for whatever reason, and it's his choosing, and he is God, so he can make the decision, has chosen not to reveal something to us. So what is the, how does this three-in-one of the Trinity work? How does this work that there could be three distinct personalities or three distinct persons in one God? Hmm. That's very hard for us to relate to, particularly because we just don't see that in existence, do we? Not in our physical world. We do not see that. We also don't see that, by the way, in the metaphysical world. There's no place else besides God that we see this described. There's no angels that are three in one. We don't see that described anywhere. There's an angel as one being in one body, in one place. That's it. Does that make sense? So it is a divine mystery because we can't fully grasp it. So what do we have to do? With anything that Scripture says that is a mystery to us, that is not fully explained to us, that we can't come up with all the answers to either logically or emotionally grasp it, to get our arms around it, to be satisfied. Oh, okay, now I get it. Anything that fits that, you know what you have to do? You have to default to believing what God says in the Word. That's really it. You just have to accept it because he says it. That's it, period. Well, I'm not comfortable with that. <laughs> does, it change, does truth change because someone isn't comfortable with it? Of course it doesn't change. How about if they don't like it? It's not they're just uncomfortable with it, but they don't like it. Does it change? doesn't change. It doesn't matter how much we convince ourselves that man-made global climate change is going to destroy the earth. It's not. How do we know this? Because the scripture tells us how the earth is going to get destroyed. And by the way, it's not going to be by a flood from the polar ice caps melting. Not going to be it. How do we know? Because God promised he's not going to flood the earth again. Remember that? Now, does that mean that the ocean could not rise? No, it doesn't mean that. Of course the ocean can rise, but it's not going to destroy the whole world. It's not going to happen. By the way, have the polar ice caps been like that since the Ice Age? Anybody? Hmm. Ah, I see most people do not want to answer. Because <laughs> you think you're going to get it wrong. But Paul, you're shaking your head no. How do we know that? Why do you say no? Oh, I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> Sorry about that. Do you, do you have an easy answer you want to give on that? That's true. The polar ice caps have expanded and have shrunk over the last several hundred years. Absolutely true. That actually, it's almost a bit of a trick question to some extent, because the question is not, has the, the polar ice caps, have they been the same since the ice age? The question is, when was the ice age? That's really the question. The question is, when was there an ice age, right? Now, interestingly enough, you only have to go back to the 1870s until you find what was called at the time the New Ice Age, where the earth was actually plunged into very, very frigid temperatures for years. The, the ice from the poles, both ways, expanded farther than it ever had. And this was actually, I mean, we saw rivers and things like there's, uh, you can read some, particularly there was a lot of writings on the River Thames freezing in London, which, by the way, never happens. It froze in the 1870s, multiple years in a row. Uh, so this, the, what happened? Well, it got warmer. I mean, that's what happened. It got warmer. It was, got cold, and then it got warmer. The reason that we know the polar ice caps have not always been like that, 
and then it certainly have not been like that always since the flood, although there's some good evidence that probably that happened fairly shortly after the flood, was because of the maps of the ancient sea kings. The maps of the ancient sea kings. Now the Phoenicians, and we're not going to go on a whole timeline of history uh, thing here, but the Phoenicians had acquired maps. We know the Phoenicians had the maps because the Phoenicians wrote about having the maps, and we have the writings about the Phoenicians having the maps. But the Phoenicians had maps of the sea that we still we do have some of them today, and they're impossible. They cannot figure out what they used to determine the accuracy of the maps. They are completely accurate to the coastlines of North America, South America, and Antarctica today. Now, how do we know what the coast of Antarctica looks like today? It's buried under snow and ice. It literally is. It has not been revealed since the age of satellites. The coast of Antarctica is still buried. Well, because now we have what's called LIDAR. So it is ground, it is penetrating radar that can look from a satellite and they can actually look through snow and ice and they can see the outline of the coast. They can see the outline. So we know what the coast of Antarctica looks like. And when they did that, the scientists were baffled. How did these maps that the Phoenicians first got, by the way, the Phoenicians admitted that they didn't create them, how did these maps have the coast of Antarctica perfectly mapped? Perfectly. How did they have, the, how did they have South, South America completely mapped? Perfectly. Rivers, everything. Well, probably because they were there, and they saw them, and they made a map. That's how. So, Prior to the Phoenicians, there was a revelation of the coast of Antarctica. And some people, we don't know who they were, mapped it. They mapped it. So that would mean that prior to the Phoenicians, so now we're going back several, well, three or 4,000 years, we go back to that time period, the coast of Antarctica were not covered in ice. They weren't covered in ice. So how many carbon emissions do you think man was generating back then to cause the atmosphere to be warmer and cause climate change? Well, since there was no industry, there was no, all the things that we blame today didn't exist, none. Right? And by the way, do you think that when they did go into this ice age where Antarctica and the poles both expanded, that people were happy about that? With plummeting temperatures, do you think people were happy about that? you think this was a great thing? Oh, good, now we have global cooling. That's what we've been wanting. Oh, you, I'm sure they weren't. I'm sure they weren't. So, boy, that was a fairly big rabbit trouble. Let's see if we can bring it back. The point is, is that the fact that we see something today, and we get our, we feel what this is, this is what's happening, and this is why it's happening, even that does not mean we fully understand what's going on. So when we try to understand a subject like the Trinity, God in three persons, our ability to comprehend this clearly is not there. It's beyond our understanding. All you can read, you say, well, I understand the Trinity. You don't. Nobody can say they understand the Trinity. What you can say is, is that you accept it. And this is the right thing. You can say, I accept it. I accept that God exists in three persons. How does that actually work? Like, is it really three persons? Is it kind of like, it's just God and he just comes out that way? No, 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 no. That's modalism. So don't go to, we're going to talk about that. But 
yes, that's really the way it is. God in three persons. Now, we talk about, and we're going to get to it in the next chapter, we talk about God's decree and what happens as a matter of God actually decreeing what was going to happen. We talk about the covenant of redemption, which has to do with God's decree. We're going to get to that as well. What is the covenant of redemption? Well, the covenant of redemption is an agreement, a covenant is an agreement, between God the Father and God the Son. Now, in this covenant of redemption, we have an agreement between two persons of God, the same God. What, wait a minute, how is that? That can't be. I mean, if they're all God, then why do they have to make an agreement? Because it's not just God. It's three persons. If God was killed on the cross, right, who is holding the universe together? Hmm. Good question. Well, it just keeps going. Does it? The scripture tells us that God holds everything together. Now, there's a name for it, and I wish I could think of the scientific name. But there is a name that science has come up with for what is causing the atoms to hold together. And it's not atomic cohesion, that's another thing. Um, There's a name for it. They have a name for what keeps the atoms together. Because they cannot explain how atoms stick together. How all atoms don't just separate, which, by the way, would mean the end of all existence. Okay? They can't explain how that happens. How do all atoms stay together? And they have a name for it. And they're trying hard to be able to figure out what it is. Well, I think I know what it is. It's G-O-D. That's what it is. It's God, because God says that he holds all things together. So isn't it interesting that science has got to the point where they finally got to the place where they can't describe, I mean, they, can't, they can describe it, but they can't explain why these things stick together. They can't, they can't understand it. As small and as minutely as they can get with microscopes, with measuring devices, they can get small enough with atomic microscopes to see the atoms, to see the components of the atoms, and they can't explain why they stay together. Can't explain it. And by the way, they can't recreate it either. They can't recreate it. It's something that we cannot explain. So even atheistic science, and all science is not atheistic, but atheists in science can see things that they cannot explain. How is this working the way that it is? They can't explain it. Why? It's beyond their ability. So is understanding God in three persons. So let's not get hung up with that. Let's understand that we're not going to fully get our arms around this concept. We're going to have to accept the truth of God's word as the truth. That's it. That's just the way it is. Okay. Subsistence is a particular person. Subsistence means a particular person. So the divine being is one The divine persons are three. This can only be true because God is truly limitless and infinite. Men and angels cannot and do not exist beyond our singular selves. So we kind of said that. All right, so the names of the subsistences, Father, Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit. These names are not simply created and used by man. They're used by God himself in reference to the other persons of the Trinity. So we have created the word Trinity. Man has created the word Trinity to describe these three persons. But God uses them himself 
to describe the persons of the Trinity in his word. So we have not made up the Father, the Word, or Son, and the Holy Spirit. We did not make those up. God uses them. So we refer to them. We refer to them. The fact that persons of the Trinity refer to each other with these terms is a clear contradiction of the heresy of modalism. I'm going to try standing up for a bit here. The heresy of modalism. So what is modalism? It's God is only one person that manifests himself in three different modes. Modalism. Okay? So, in other words, modalism would say that God revealed himself as a man, right? But he's still the same God. God revealed himself as the Father. He's He's still one God, etc. God just goes into different modes. Well, this is very, very easily refuted in the Scripture because you see multiple instances where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are present at the same time. The most, the most easy one to go to is at Christ's baptism. So Christ is present as himself, as Jesus. The Son is present. He's in the water with John the baptism, getting baptized. The voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, the Father, and the Spirit of God descends like a dove. You see references to all three at the same time. Now that's even just, just beside the point that we see this in multiple places, including the Mount of Transfiguration. We see this over and over again referenced in the New Testament, in the epistles. We see this referenced, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We see this in many places. We see Christ himself referencing the Spirit, the Comforter, and God the Father. We see this over and over. It's not a matter of him referencing himself. It's a matter of him referencing other parts of the Trinity. Of one substance, power, and eternity. Well, all three persons of the Trinity are of the same substance or essence, power, and eternity. None have more of those characteristics than the other. All have them completely. So it's not that, well, God the Father has the most power, and God the Son has a little less power. And the Spirit, eh, you get a little power. They just give him a little bit of power. That's not the way it is. They all have the same power. We don't often think about that, but they have the same power. Now, oftentimes, here's what we think of, right? We don't think of, and this, there's so many different ways that people have just gone astray from the Scripture, right? And one is this idea that God the Father is like a meanie. He's the God of vengeance and the wrathful God. And God the Son, Jesus, he's all love. He's all about love. He just loves. Okay. God the Father loves. And who is the one, by the way, that it says will destroy men? Christ. Who is the one who will send all who are unbelievers to hell? Christ. Not God the Father. And if God the Father is the one who has all the power, that's interesting, who created the entire existence that we know? According to the scriptures, Jesus, the Son, created everything. So it's not that you see some limiting of power or limiting of authority in the different persons of the Godhead. They all share the same. They all share the same.
each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. Well, it means that each person of the Trinity has the entire divine essence. It's not divided amongst them. If it were divided, it would make them each not completely God. Each person of the Trinity is fully God, not just when combined with the other persons. In other words, if you say that, well, God the Son has a part, and God the Father has a part, and God the Spirit has a part, then what you're saying is none of them are actually fully God. To be God, they must have the entire divine essence. They must have it. They must have the same power. Or you're going to have lesser gods. You see? You're going to have lesser gods if you, if you believe that. So you can't believe that. They have the same. God is not a combination of persons. If he needed the three persons, it would implicate that a single one of his persons is less than complete, less than perfect. We know that God is perfect, so each person of the Trinity is completely God, not just a piece or part. Does that make sense? In other words, if God the Son or God the Spirit don't have all of God's power, authority, eternity, essence in them, they are less than perfect because they're they're missing something. They're missing something. They'd be an imperfect God. So, of course, that's not the case. They all must be completely God. Now, let's look at some verses. You can see there's a lot of references that were actually listed in the Confession under 20 footnote 27 and 28. And you can see I've got a few verses in there as well. All right. Okay, so here we go. 1 John 5, 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one doesn't take a much more, uh, any other verses really, to completely define the Trinity than that. These three are one. Matthew 28, 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So if someone says, well, Christ didn't teach the Trinity, really? Well, look at the Great Commission. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Second Corinthians 1314, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. What is that? That's the Son, the Father, and the Spirit. Exodus 314, and God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. Interestingly enough, who else claimed to be I am? Jesus. Jesus said he is I am. You think this is lost on the Jews at the time? Oh no, they called him a blasphemer. They knew exactly what it meant for someone to say that they were I am. God claims that he, to Moses, I am that I am. He is I am. John 14, 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for, thy ver- for the very work's sake. Interesting. Here's Christ. I am in the Father and the Father in me. Now, how does that work if you're a regular person? It doesn't work if you're a regular person, does it? 1 Corinthians 8, 6, but to us... There is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, 
by whom are all things, and we by him. Interesting. So this is a reference just to God the Father and to Jesus Christ, or God the Son. But notice it says that we are, we see both relationships, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice it says, by the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. This is referencing other places in Scripture where it tells us that the Son was actually the author of creation, by whom are all things. And notice that it says, God the Father, of whom are all things. Of, not by, two different roles, not the same roles. Do you see this? The Father and the Son are described differently. Matthew 3, 16 to 17, and Jesus, when he was baptized, there's the reference I mentioned, went straight up way out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hmm. So, that's a good little tickler, if you're writing book uh, references in the back of your Bible on a blank page. Trinity, Matthew 3, 16 and 17. I don't think I'll ever talk to anybody who has a problem with the Trinity. Really, have you ever met a Mormon? How about a Jehovah's Witness? How about an unbeliever? Nobody met anybody like that? Yes, you have. Matthew 17, 5. While he yet spake, behold, a bright color over, a bright cloud overshadowed him, them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Matthew 17, 5. Where is this? I mentioned it. Mount of Transfiguration. Who are the ones? It says here, While he spake, yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed him. Who is speaking? Peter. And Peter saw what? It's only a few, a few, a handful, less than a handful, of apostles. Christ takes to the mount, to this place. They witness Christ and who? Two others. Who is it? Moses and Elijah. Peter wants to do what? You don't have to quote it. Just what did he want to do? He wanted, he wanted to basically build something to worship them. He wanted to build something that he could worship them because of how special this place was here. He wanted to set something up. While he is saying this, this cloud comes above, the voice from heaven says. Later, we see references to Peter, quote, we heard God's voice. He says this later. He quotes the fact, he mentions the fact that they heard God's voice directly saying this is his son. This becomes a proof for him to use on others. We heard directly from God. This is his son. There wasn't a question. It was done. If it's modalism, that couldn't have happened, right? Jesus is right here. Was he a ventriloquist? No. They knew who it was. They knew who it was to the point that that's what they used from then on. Luke 24, 49, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Christ is commanding to stay in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. What is the power that's coming? The Holy Spirit. By the way, did the apostles know this at this point? 
They didn't know this. You know what this was to them at the time? It was a divine mystery. right? Christ tells them, until you be endued with power from on high. But they didn't actually know what that meant. They didn't know what that meant. They're going to find out, but they didn't know yet. We know. We read the book. We read Acts. We see what happens. Wow. Amazing. Why didn't they get it? Why didn't they know? (laughs) Because it wasn't revealed to them yet, right? It wasn't revealed to them yet. These passages all point us in this direction. We're going to see some more, though, as we continue through, because you're going to see as the footnotes go, as we go through the paragraph, there are more footnotes with a lot more verses. Some of them uh, are different verses. We could have used them right here, but we're holding them or saving them so that we can actually use them to reference other parts of this explanation. All right. So paragraph three continues. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. So there is a relational order of the Godhead reflected in Scripture. It does not mean there is any inferiority. It does not mean there's inferiority. The Father is of none because that means that he's the first of the Godhead. You see this over and over in Scripture. Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Father, Son. You see this over and over again. Not begotten does not mean born or created, by the way. It's a reference to the relational order of the Trinity. Nor does he proceed. He's the first of the Godhead. So does that mean that God is in charge? God the Father is in charge of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. It does not mean that. What do you mean? It says begotten and proceed. It's an explanation for us to get better what the persons of the Trinity do. It's not because that is their level of godness. The Son was eternally begotten of the Father. However, we know that he was eternally with God, that the Son or the Word was with God and was God. God cannot be created, and as God, neither could the Son have been a created being. Begotten reflects the relationship between the Son and the Father. Notice that this confession phrase actually says eternally begotten of the Father. Notice that if they wouldn't have added the word eternally, that could have insinuated that there was a beginning to the Son. Right? It's eternally begotten. There was no beginning. It's just existence. How does that work? Paul? Mystery. Our ability to comprehend existence outside of time is poor. Right? It's, we're, our, we are unable to have a relevant understanding without time. Now, interestingly enough, as in most things, science fiction has made some attempts. You know, if you think about almost any divine mystery that exists, somebody has written about it. I would say probably every divine mystery that exists. Somebody has written about it. And usually it's, it's that they either write about it because they're trying to explain it so that we can understand it better, even though we can't fully understand it, or they write about it in a fictional way to get people to see how mind-blowing this is. 
Now, you're never going to see a preface in a book say, you know, I had a hard time with dealing with the concept of eternity and that God is eternal. So I wrote this book that deals with some beings that exist outside of time so that people would have a better understanding of God. You'll never see that in a preface. Instead, you'll read a book, and it'll be this mind-blowing thing, and then you could find out later, and this I've seen this, that the author actually was dealing with the fact that God is outside of time, and we can't understand this. There's been books written about, science fiction books about this. In fact, this even made it into Star Trek. One of the spin-offs of Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, had beings that did not exist in time. They were outside of time. That's weird. That's why it's called science fiction. But they existed outside of time. And so the people that were dealing with them couldn't understand that existence. And in the end, the beings that existed outside of time said, you're never going to understand it fully. Yes, true. <laughs> That's where we're at. True. Why? Because it, we can't... Our, how does God see the entirety of history at the same time? But he does. Why? We're in this finite time. He's not. See, we, this is what we really think about. This, I mean, just admit this. When you think about, about God and existing outside of time, here's what you do. You create this thing and you say it's got arrows that point this way. That's God. And then here's this in the middle. And it's all of existence of creation. Except you just created a timeline. You can't do that. See what I mean? So if you say, well, this is eternity, and this part of eternity is existence, is the universe, is heaven and earth. You just created a timeline. You created an eternal timeline. It's like a timeline that just doesn't have an end. But that's not what God is. He's not in time. He's not on a timeline. We're not one portion of his existence. Mind-blowing. The Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son reflects the position of the relation after the Father and the Son. Let's read a few verses that refer to these things specifically. John 1.14 and then 1.18. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory the glory of as only the, one, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Then John fifteen twenty six, But when the Comforter is come, whom will I send? I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. So this is Christ talking about God the Father is going to send the Comforter. You see this? All three, one verse, John 15, 26. Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Notice what he said there. I'm going to read it again. And because you are sons, little s, God has sent, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts. You see this? John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with us, was with God, and the Word was God. Who was the Word? The Son. We just read John 
The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So all these verses reflect the same thing. God exists in three persons. He's existed in three persons. And I want you to think about this for a second before we go forward in this, which we're going to, well, actually, no. Well, I don't want to skip. I'm going to skip ahead on myself there. Got to be careful. All right, so let's look at the next part of the paragraph. <laughs> all infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. So, all infinite, without beginning, Therefore, but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. So in other words, God is still God, but these three persons of the Godhead have different relations. And you could say different jobs, to some extent. They're not jobs, but they have different relations. As all three persons of the Godhead are infinite without beginning, they must be one God. Why? Well, because what do we have? Three separate gods existed for all eternity? There's lots of problems with that. Lots of problems. We're not going to even go down that path. That's all mind-blowing. Hook your noodle. Each member is distinct, but the Godhead is not divided either in nature or its essence, nor in being. God's distinct persons together are one being. Again, Difficult for us to get our arms around. We must accept it because the scripture tells us this. We're going to see some verses for this too. The Trinity is not divided but distinguished. This distinction is not the same as division. In this context, peculiar means unique. The titles of the three substances themselves are distinct. Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. So these are the distinctions that we see. All right. All right, so let's just talk for a second before I flip to the next side. Let's just talk for a second about the concept. If you think about this for, to some extent, uh, and this is, I mean, look, as, as almost any example to explain the Trinity is full of problems, right? There's, there, there's, there's no perfect example of the Trinity because there's nothing that exists that is like the Trinity. But as far as the jobs go, you can actually see that there is some relevance uh, in mankind's existence to the actual peculiar traits of what each of the different members of the Godhead do. The Son is uh, separate from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit it dwells within us. The Holy Spirit influences men. The Holy Spirit helps men. The Holy Spirit can transmit prayers to the Son. The Son is our intermediary. The Son acts in our behalf to the Father. The Son carries our petitions to the Father. The Father hears our petitions. The Father grants our requests through Christ. The Father is the one who is over all and who definitely acts as if he is the head where the the Son is sitting at his right hand. So there is these peculiar relationships. God the Father is not listening directly to your prayers. How do we know this? Because the Bible tells us this. Christ is the intercessor for us, who takes our request to the Father. And by the way, as a good intercessor, he probably cleans them up a little bit. Puts them the right way to the Father. 
Well, if someone prays for sin, he's probably not going to take that to the Father. How do we know this? Scripture tells us this. Well, I'm just going to pray for everything then. Good. Pray without ceasing. The Spirit should help you to actually pray for the right things. God the Father is not dwelling in you and telling you how to pray for the right things. It's God the Spirit. It's different. It's not the same. It's different. By the way, the Spirit is not granting your requests. Now, it's difficult for us to create that separation in our minds, but that is the way it is. Say, well, you know, quick prayer. God, please help me not to hit this tree. If you can think that fast. Usually accidents are so fast, you probably can't think that fast. But let's say you're sliding on ice, and it's like slow motion, which, has anyone ever else ever had that? I've had that several times. Where you're sliding, it's like, oh, man, here we go, you know. <laughs> and then, boom, hit something. So you could be praying, God, please help me not to hit this tree. Now, instantaneously, that request, through the Holy Spirit, is transmitted to the Son. The Son intercedes to the Father. The Father decides if, it answer, if it's going to happen or not. Right? Now, that, the speed of which those things occur, uh, we can't even get into. But that's the process that works. All right, so now we go to, paragraph, to section C, which is its relevance to us. Which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on him? So, in other words, all these descriptions of how the three persons of the Trinity exist, how they are different in some aspects, basically how they're distinguished from each other, that all is the foundation of our communion with God and comfortable dependence on him. In other words, our understanding of the doctrine of Trinity will help keep us from the shifting winds of false teaching that continuously seek to displace us into man-centered religion of feelings and preferences. That comfortable reliance on God's word and our understanding of what it teaches is the stronghold that keeps us from doubts that would interrupt our dependence on him. This should be your stronghold, your understanding of how this works. Heresies that shift the Trinity doctrine around, that seek to displace things, that seek to say, for instance, God lives in you all. That's heretical. No, he does not. God does not live in all. His Spirit fills believers. The unbeliever does not have God in them. There is no divine spark. Have you heard that before? Huh? That's Greek. That all men have a little spark of God in them. And you just got to fan that spark to make it flame into goodness. It's not true. Men, is de- men are desperately wicked. They're evil. But those things come out of a misunderstanding of the Trinity. If you understand the Trinity and you grasp the Trinity and you don't let go of the Trinity, it will keep you from getting caught up into some of those heretical teachings. The doctrine of the Trinity is what gives us assurance that our relationship, which varies with each distinct personality of the Godhead, is a relationship with the one triune God. So as I just said, our relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are different. 
but they are still a relationship with the one triune God. Without the Trinity, there is no incarnation of God in human form, and therefore there was no redemption and hence no salvation. No one capable of being the mediator between God and man. So is the Trinity important? It's really important. Salvation is the working of all three persons of the Godhead. 1 Peter 1, 22. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So this doctrine has been attacked throughout Christian history and is a required belief of any Orthodox Christian. It is non-negotiable. Anything that denies the most basic, this most basic tenet of Christianity is heresy. Now, this we're about to get into, not today, so next week, we're going to be getting into a number of opponents and critics of the doctrine of the Trinity, and then we're going to look at their specific arguments against the doctrine of the Trinity. We're going to break those down as well, so we'll do that next week. Um, but this first point here is a key. To be an Orthodox Christian, you must believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. This was the problem with Arianism. And if you recall, Arianism was why we got the Athanasian Creed and the Nicene Creed. This was a huge heresy in the church. It was huge problems. When we first began this study of the 1689, I talked a little bit about the history of creeds and confession, and we talked about the problem that was happening in the church history with, Athen- with Arius and how he was a challenge, and Constantine was involved here. And uh, all of these things, basically, were because of a misunderstanding of the Trinity. And of someone trying, in Arius's case, to use Greek teaching on pagan gods as an explanation for the Trinity. So Christ was therefore a lesser God. God, but lesser God. Not God the Father. That's a problem. So, this does happen. This is an issue. It happen, it's happening today. Many, many heresies today exist in so-called churches. They're not the true church. Because if they're the true church, they'd believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. The scripture are, is replete with examples of the doctrine of the Trinity. We just read a bunch. So next week, we'll pick back up with looking at some of these opponents and critics of the doctrine of the Trinity and then our response to some of their criticisms. Let's close in a word of prayer.